Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present Part 2 of our conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of the second week of witness testimony in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up right after the break. Before we begin this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. And now Jury Duty continues its coverage of Danny Masterson's retrial with another in our series of conversations between Jury Duty creator Carrie Antholis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. On our last installment, we presented part one of the conversation between Carrie and Tony about week two of witness testimonies in the Masterson retrial, where they covered most of the testimony of Jane Doe 1. On today's episode, we present part two of their chat as they conclude their discussion of Jane Doe 1's testimony. Moving on to day eight, Judge Almeida limited Philip Cohen to 45 more minutes with Jane Doe 1 on cross. How did her testimony end? And was there any redirect and recross of her after Cohen finished his cross? Right. At the, at the end of the previous day, she'd been on the stand, you know, like three days already and, and more on cross than direct. And she had warned him, said, you, you get 45 minutes the next day. He did not object at that point. The next morning they came back and he was asking her about some important things, I think, and was getting to the, again, reporting to police and what she'd said to police. And then I was keeping an eye. I had made a note and I knew when 45 minutes was coming. And I tell you what, Carrie, that moment, she just said, okay, you're done. Prosecution redirect. And I mean, he was, he had just asked a question, didn't even give her an opportunity to respond. It was, I guess he, I don't know if he wasn't watching the clock, but you could tell he still had things he really wanted to ask. And so they did redirect and recross, but on redirect and recross, she's really strict. You can only redirect, on redirect, the DA can only ask about the things that were brought up on cross-examination. And on recross, the defense can only bring up things that were brought up on redirect. So they're both very brief. And he ended up calling for a mistrial because, moving for a mistrial, because he thought that it was just against the law to limit him that way. But she then read case law saying that she could limit and, and also to get things on the record in case of an appeal, of course, she gave a recitation of just numerous times when he had wasted time. She specifically focused, you know, mentioned the jacuzzi water and other things. And she just laid down this, you know, record for these are all the ways that you wasted time and it, you know, you, you had her on the stand for more than a day. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, that's, she denied the mistrial. 
The next witness on day eight was Jane Doe 1's cousin, Rachel. She was called by the prosecution. Tell us the significance of her testimony. Yeah, so Jane Doe 1 alleges she was attacked by Madison, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning in April 25th, 2003. And later that same day, in the afternoon of April 25th, she was scheduled to be at her father's birthday party. And then the whole family was flying that night on a red eye to Tampa. So they were going to go to Clearwater and celebrate her dad's birthday. And so they were then in Florida for several days. And this Rachel was 17 at the time, and she was on that trip. And Rachel Rachel says she definitely noticed the bruises, that they were darker than they appeared on the photographs. And she had asked Jane Doe One about it. And so that was the first person that Jane Doe One said anything to. And that's why she's an important witness. Jane Doe One has testified that her cousin Rachel was only 17. And so she wasn't going to tell her about all the sexual stuff, but that she did you know, tell her that she'd gotten this drink and that she was suspiciously intoxicated and she was at Masterson's house and that she was bruised. And so we got all of that. Jane, Rachel ended up saying a few things that contradict Jane Doe One. Like she said that her cousin had said that she'd had a couple of drinks before she went to Madison's house. And that definitely contradicts Jane Doe One's testimony that she had nothing to drink. So I know the defense is probably going to make a big deal about that in their closing. But again, Jane Doe One has said that she wasn't going to tell her cousin everything. And Rachel herself said it's been 20 years. So I don't know that it hurts the prosecution that much that the cousin doesn't remember things the same way Jane Doe One does. Is the cousin a member of the church? No, and she never was. And actually, the defense wanted to make something of that because, you know, one of the things that, you know, Jane Doe One has testified to is that she was born in Scientology. Her parents were Scientologists. All of her friends were Scientologists. And so the prospect of her being expelled then is huge because basically, you know, she, you know, you'd lose all these Scientologists. That's basically the only people she associated with. But then Rachel comes on the stand. She's an important witness for the prosecution. But the first thing they ask her is, were you ever a Scientologist? She said no. And so the defense, I think, made a little bit of that that said, well, you know, she actually lived with them. They were very close. So it kind of goes against what you've been saying about how everybody in your world was Scientologists. I, I don't know if that, that really hurts her story that much. The next witness called by the prosecution was Claire Headley. But before she took the stand, defense attorney Sean Hawley made one final appeal to Judge Almedo to reconsider her qualifying Headley as an expert witness. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, they had opposed her before the trial, and now it's just, you know, that like you said, just before Claire's going to go on, Sean Hawley asked the judge to exclude her, questioning her qualifications and that kind of thing. And the judge, you know, referred to her ruling that, she, you know, she was going to allow more Scientology content, and also that she felt it would be helpful to the jury to have an actual Scientologist testify to what these victims were saying. And so she allowed it. Claire was in the CR when she was born. In Scientology, she was in it until she left when she was 30 years old. She ended up at the in the RTC, the Religious Technology Center. RTC is nominally controlling Sea Org organization that runs Scientology. And she was actually at the secretive international base near Hemet, California for many years. And she worked very closely with David Miscavige. So this is somebody who has so much experience with Scientology management and how the place is run. But before she got on, Stan, both the deputy DA Ariel Anson and Sean Hawley went over how they agreed she was not going to testify about her own personal story. 
She was definitely not going to say anything about escaping Scientology or using that word, and that she was just there to help the jury understand some of these arcane terms that had been coming up. And so her testimony was relatively brief, but she really did a good job explaining some of these things because Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3, they've been allowed to give so much more Scientology testimony, which I think is really interesting. But at times, they speak kind of fast, they use jargon, and it's a little confusing. So it was great to have Claire come in and really speak speak to what is a knowledge report and what is a handling, you know, why is it Scientologists can't report things to the police? What are they told about that? So she went through all of that and she brought in some non-Scientology terminology to help people understand. I thought, you know, one of the most interesting is when Anson said to her, well, what if things are conflicting and the, the Scientology codes are conflicting with the laws outside Scientology? And Claire just said a Scientologist is going to follow Scientology law over civil law any day of the week. You know, and I think that was really, really important that she said something like that. So in Scientology, they have this Orwellian term, ethics, and they don't really mean ethics. They mean like obeying Scientology. You know, this is this is the department that makes sure you're obeying all their rules. And uh, it's something that's all Scientologists fear is being hauled down to ethics to be interrogated. Because, you know, one reason, Carrie, it didn't come out really in the trial, but you pay for it. You know, I, I remember talking to a Scientologist that ran afoul of the ethics department and she was brought down and, you know, she was interrogated for days and they got a bill for $3,000 for it. So, you know, you, that's what the ethics department is something you fear in Scientology. Anyway, what ethics protection means is that, you know, it's very unfair. If you have a celebrity who's bringing in a lot of money to Scientology and is making, making Scientology look good to the public, like Danny Masterson at the time, he's on a big show, that 70s show, he has ethics protection. And, and the way that Claire described it is you're told if somebody makes a report on an upstat person like Danny, their ethics protection is that you're just supposed to file that report with a yawn. In other words, 
you're not going to do anything about it because that person is untouchable as long as they are doing so well for the church as a member of good standing. So that's what ethics protection is. And these women learned firsthand that Danny Madison had ethics protection. And when they came to the church with allegations that he'd raped them, they didn't just file away with a yawn, they punished the women. The other thing that she referred to a knowledge report is, you know, Scientology is a snitching culture. You are constantly told you need to turn in people you see violating Scientology's ethics. And that could be your own parents or your own children. Leah Remini talked about how she wrote knowledge reports about her husband all the time. Anytime her husband didn't toe the line, right? So they're called KRs in short in Scientology. And Scientologists are always writing KRs. But Claire pointed out something interesting. If you write a knowledge report about someone, it's because you believe you have direct knowledge that that person has done something wrong. You type it up, you submit it, and that person will get a copy. And it will go in their file. Now, there's another kind of report called a things that shouldn't be report. And she explained that the difference is in the things that shouldn't be report, you see that there's something going wrong, but you're not exactly sure who's at fault. And so this won't be shared with the people that you name in it because you're not sure if they're to blame. So that's the difference between knowledge report, things that shouldn't be report. We also heard about other kinds of condition reports and all kinds of Scientologists are always writing reports about each other. That's one thing we get from Claire Headley. And how did Sean Hawley handle the cross-examination of Claire Headley? You know, it was really interesting because I wonder if Sean Hawley wasn't a little uncomfortable sort of questioning Claire as if, you know, because the Church of Scientology is constantly throwing shade at Claire Headley and smearing her online. And so I'm not sure that Sean Hawley wanted to be in that same position. But one of the funny things that happened, for example, in talking about her, two things in, in, in reference to her qualifications. As I said, Claire was born in Scientology. She left when she was 30 years old. So she says she was in for 30 years. But Sean Hawley says, yeah, but for part of that, you were a baby, you were a child, right? And so why, you know, is it really 30 years that you have experienced it? And Claire responded with something interesting. She pointed out by the time she was 16, she was a major executive in Scientology and was running whole divisions. That's the truth that Scientology often, the person interrogating you, the person who is deciding your fate, maybe a 16 or 17 year old. It's really a crazy place. The other thing she pointed out about her qualifications is that on the processing side, the counseling side, which is called auditing in Scientology, Claire has reached something called OT4, which stands for Operating Thetan Level 4. The, the progression takes years when you go through Scientology. You start at the very beginning with some low, very inexpensive courses, but it very quickly gets expensive. You go through something called the grades when you're done with the grades, you then go clear, which is a major intermediate goal. Then you start on what are called the operating Phaeton levels, one through eight. And operating Phaeton level eight is the highest. And when you're operating Phaeton level eight, OT8, then you are an operating Phaeton. Well, the chart that they use in Scientology shows levels going all the way to OT15. Now, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, never released anything higher than OT8, but theoretically, Theoretically, it was going to go to OT15. So Sean, she said, now on this chart, it goes to 15, doesn't it? Yes. But you're only four, right? <laughs> 
as if to imply that, you know, she's not the expert that she claims to be. And those of us who, you know, know something about it realize how funny that is because Claire was a Sea Org management executive. She was running whole parts of Scientology. It has little to do with the counseling side. It was kind of comical because I get what Holly's doing. The jury wouldn't know the difference. The jury might think, yeah, why are we hearing from an OT4 when there's OT15s out there? So that was one of those things that was kind of funny where I thought, wow, Sean Holly's really trying to question her Scientology bona fides. But in general, you know, Holly was doing her best to question her neutrality. She also brought up your podcast at one point. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, after the first trial, Judge Romano had, had decided that she should not testify. So after the trial was done, I had her on asking her, well, what would you have tried to testify to? And, and Carrie, I don't remember that podcast very well, and I have purposely not gone back to look at it because I have a feeling the defense may try to call me subpoena me and call me as a witness. This has happened before. Tom Mesero subpoenaed me at the prelim and tried to pull me into the case, and I got that quashed. So I've talked to my attorney. We're getting ready. I don't know if they're going to try that again this time, but that's really all I can say about that podcast. It did happen in December 2022. So moving on to day nine, at the beginning of the day, did Judge Almeida announce a semi-sequestering of the jury? And if so, what was that about? Well, since that altercation in the hall, when these jurors heard some shouting and about Scientology, she decided that she would keep them in the jury room at lunchtime and bring them their lunch, which is being provided by the courthouse, so that they would not be mixing with us in the hallway, and also that they would be escorted out of the building in the evening, again, so they wouldn't have to walk by the Masterson party or other audience members. And she also kind of gave us all an admonition. Judge Almeida was a huge baseball fan. And so she used an analogy and she said, look, you're a huge Dodger fan. You go to Dodger Stadium and you're appalled because half the stadium are wearing Giants gear. And we all know how much the Dodgers and Giants hate each other. And she said, even though as a Dodger fan, you're offended, you cannot get those Giants fans excluded from the stadium. And she was basically making an analogy, which was very similar to what I had said in my video, that people may not like it, but Scientologists have the right to come to court and watch this trial as long as they sit quietly and don't do anything. And I I think she was making the same point that, you know, just to take a precaution, we're going to keep the jury out of there. But she even had the communications office hand out copies of the court rules to everybody in the audience, including those of us on press row, just to remind us what the rules were. So, you know, listen, the last thing we want right now, Carrie, is a mistrial. I mean, after going through the first trial with the hung jury, and now we're halfway through this one, I mean, gosh, we don't want to have to do this thing a third time. So she's just being very careful, and I, I understand that. During the substance of day nine, Jane Doe too testified. Would you give us the essence of her testimony? But first, again, a warning to our listeners, as with the previous Jane Doe's, this is pretty graphic and disturbing stuff. And in fact, I think you've stated, Tony, that Jane Doe too's testimony contains perhaps the most brutal of the allegations against Masterson. So in that context, could you take us through who Jane Doe too is and what her allegations are and how her questioning went? She's interesting. She like Jane Doe One, was also just an acquaintance of Danny. She was an actress. She had been on a, a network sitcom. And so she said she thought of Danny as a peer, not as a celebrity. They had some friends in common, one of whom was this designer. Her name was Ilaria Urbanati. And Jane Doe Two was temporarily staying with Ilaria. And Ilaria asked her out to have drinks with 
Danny and his ever-present sidekick, Luke Watson, at this bar there in Hollywood. And at that, while they were having drinks, she noticed that Danny was just intently staring at her and afterwards asked her for her number. And once she gave, uh, gave it, he then started sending her these really commanding texts. You're coming over. You're putting on a bathing suit. You're getting in my jacuzzi. And... She thought it was odd, but she also thought maybe this is what he thinks flirting is. And so they went back and forth and he was really adamant using this commanding, you know, these commanding words, these texts. And so finally she said, okay, I will come over, but I'm not bringing a bathing suit. I'm not getting in your jacuzzi. We can have a glass of wine and talk. And so she went over there. She said it was walking distance, only about three blocks from where she was staying with Ilaria. And as soon as she got to his house, the first thing he did was give her a big glass of red wine and said, drink this. And she remembers, you know, well, can you show me around the house? Can I get a tour or something? Drink this. And he's really adamant about it. And so she drank the wine and then he showed her around and they ended up out by the jacuzzi. And he said, take your clothes off. And she said by this time, she was starting to feel really strange. And she was, you know, kind of giggling and saying, no, I told you I'm not going to do that. And she described how this, this whatever was in this drink was really affecting her. And she, we went, we, we had to go through this whole history. No, she's never experienced, she has been a drinker. She's never experienced anything like that. That she was losing her vision. Like she's, the way she described it was things were going black. And the next thing she's, she knows, she's in the jacuzzi, she, her clothes are off, they're making out and he's fingering her. And then she's, you know, telling him, look, this is okay, but I can't, we cannot have intercourse. Danny, we cannot have sex. And so they went up to, the, he ended up saying, go to the shower. It took her up to the shower. She assumed to wipe the, get the chlorine off or something. And then in the shower, he put his penis inside of her. And she was just shocked. And yet it said to him, Danny, I said, no, we can't do this. We can't do this. And that he then took her to his bedroom and they went back to making out. And, and she talked about how, you know, of course, the DA is asking her, well, why, why are you making out with him at that point? And she described being afraid and hoping that she was managing the situation, that she didn't want it to get worse, that she was she was afraid things could get violent. And so she was going along to keep things at a certain level. And then at some point she testified, he said, okay, that's it. Flipped her over on all fours and, and entered her from behind and grabbed her hips and just started violently thrusting. And the way she describes it, oh my God, it's just the worst in the trial. She's just talking about being a rag doll and she's telling him, once she really realized what was going on and it was painful and he just you know was just hammering her with it and holding down her hips and she she realized what was going on she said well at least put a condom on and so she was asked about that why would you say that and you know as if you know it was sort of like sort of like consenting to what was going on she said she wasn't consenting to what was going on but she didn't want to get a disease she didn't want to get pregnant she was concerned about her health and so it kept going on and of course he didn't and then he kept going on and going on and she said at some point she just kind of gave up she, she'd said no so many times he flipped her over on her back he flipped her back over on her knees it was just it just sounded so brutal and she said that he was like a jackhammer and she was like a rag doll and, and eventually eventually he he climaxed and she said he went to get a towel to wipe her off as if suddenly he was a gentleman so then she stayed and they talked for hours and again she's asked this why did you do that and she was saying look she was so confused 
confused. This is somebody she knew. She didn't want to think this was what it was. She was trying already to reframe it as not a rape. And, you know, we had heard from an expert earlier in the trial that this is not unusual for women who are attacked by men they know or men they're in a relationship with, that this is consistent with that. That, you you know, you don't just like fight off a man and go running screaming. And so they knew that that was going to be one of the most controversial things. So they stayed on that for a while. And she talked about what she was thinking about and how she was already trying to recontextualize it is the word she uses. Jane Doe, too, is a very, very intellectual, intelligent, sensitive person. And that's another reason why it's, to me, it's so hard to hear her allegations in the courtroom because they're so brutal. And she just seems like such a sympathetic, you know, thoughtful person. It was difficult to hear. Is Jane Doe, too, a member of the Church of Scientology? She was. She her mother had been in it, and and at some point, Jane Doe too has some anxiety issues, and she had talked to her mother about possibly getting medication for it. And Scientologists, and often ex-Scientologists too, are so indoctrinated that there's nothing more evil in the universe than psychiatry. They are against all psychiatric medication, and even though her mother was not affiliated with a church at that time, she encouraged her to get into Scientology and to take courses. And so she had become a Scientologist. So I don't think she was involved quite the level that Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3 were, but Jane Doe 2 still had some of the same experiences. She had gone to ethics for a previous incident. She realized that if she went to Scientology with allegations against Danny Masterson, that she would be treated as having done something wrong. She was pretty well indoctrinated in all the same Scientology policies. There were moments in Jane Doe 2's testimony where she was disturbed by activity in the courtroom and she took some breaks. Some of that activity was by courtroom staff. Some was by things she perceived in the gallery. Could you take us through those moments? Sure. So while the witness is speaking, there's a clerk and a bailiff, and they will take phone calls. Uh, I mean, you know, Judge Almeida's handling numerous cases, and they're very quiet about it, but it unnerved Jane Doe, too. And she stopped a couple times because either the clerk or the bailiff were speaking on the phone. And she just said, I can't focus, I can't focus. And so Judge Almeida asked her staff, look, don't take calls right now, and that was fine. But then there was a different moment when she stopped and said that there were a couple people in the audience that bothered her. Well, after the Jane Doe and Vicky Pombereski thing, you know, you know Judge Almeida's going to take that seriously. And so they investigated it. And it, tur- it turned out there were these two women. They were not sitting very far from me, Gary. They both had on dark coats. They had very, they were somewhat similar in appearance. They had very similar hair. They both had their hair pulled back in buns. And I guess to Jane Doe, too, from where she was sitting, it looked like two women in uniform because they looked so much alike. And so she got the idea that these were Scientology Sea Org members who had been sent in to, you know, intimidate her. And so she asked, that's what she said. Well, the the defense went over and spoke to them. And it turns out they were public defenders. They were attorneys from the public defender's office. So that was, you know, the, of course the defense then, went, once it was Philip Cohen's chance to cross-examine Jane Doe too, that's the first thing he launched into. Because, you know, it was it was a kind of something that the defense can grab onto because from their perspective, it's like, look, see, these people see Scientologists everywhere and they're mistaken. So... You know, I, I understand why Judge Omedo wanted to check that out, and she's sensitive to that. 
but yeah, in this in this particular incident, Jane Doe too was mistaken. They were not Scientology Sea Org members. Overall, in terms of the testimony of Jane Doe too, given how emotional and brutal the circumstances she was describing were, was there an emotional power and were there emotional breaks in her testimony? Yeah, she had to stop. She did a very good job getting through her testimony, but there were times when she got emotional and a couple times when she asked for breaks. They, I think she held up pretty well. I feel for her because Cohen started his cross-examination and, and went to the same area as he did the last time as far as, you know, when she spoke to law enforcement, what she said back then, what she's saying now. But they only got into it, I don't know, not too long. And then we broke for a four-day weekend. So that poor woman has got four days to think about coming back to being cross-examined by Philip Cohen. So I kind of, I, I think that's an unfortunate timing. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they could have switched up some witnesses so that it didn't happen. But Cohen just got started, so we'll be picking that back up on Tuesday. That brought us to the end of a short week, Tony. But I have one final question for you. I read in your reports that there was at least one juror who had a medical emergency in their family it was and was seeking to be excused. Have we had any changes in the composition of the jury since the trial began? No, because that was an alternate. They were able to let him go without a problem. Apparently his father was in the hospital and he wanted to go. So they let him go. So now we've got the original 12 jurors and we've got seven alternates instead of eight. And, you know, people always ask me about the jury. It's difficult for me to look over at them very much because I'm typing as much as I can of what everybody's saying. But every time I have looked over there, this jury looks interested and they're watching whoever's on the stand. So, you know, uh, we hope for the best that they're paying attention. That's all we can hope for is that they, they pay attention and consider the evidence. We've got to break down. Let me go through a little bit. Seven women, five men. And uh, I believe we have five that appear to be Latino or Latina and two black people and a mix of older and younger. You know, the younger folks appear to be in their 30s and some some other folks appear to be in their 50s and 60s. It's a mix that, you know, was pretty characteristic for Los Angeles. Tony Ortega, thanks again for joining us. Will you remind our listeners where they can find you? Please sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com and you'll get my reports from the courtroom the second I send them out. I send out reports at every break during the day and uh, I think people really enjoy reading those because there's no cameras in the courtroom and that's the best they can get to being in there with me. Well, I can vouch for that. I look forward to each and every one of those. <laughs> Thank you again and we look forward to talking to you again in a week or so. Thanks a lot, Karen. Enjoy it. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, the retrial of Danny Masterson. Please join our next installment as Tony Ortega and Carrie Antholis begin to discuss week three of the Masterson retrial. And, starting later this month, look for season eight of Jury Duty, covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com and you can follow him on Twitter at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty. <laughs>